The minor prophets are 12 small books in the Old Testament, hence the name minor, right? We're studying one minor prophet a week this semester, and we'll talk about each prophet's book, and then we'll study a key passage in that prophet. So let me briefly explain why we're studying the minor prophets. For those of you who haven't been here, maybe you forgot over spring break. Okay, really briefly, they're life-challenging. They're going to shake up our expectations of Scripture, of God, of Jesus. The minor prophets are graphic. They're postcards from the edge is what we're calling it. And finally, when the going gets tough, and it may well get tough with Obadiah tonight, although it sounds like a great country singer name, though, Obadiah. Anyway, um, I want you to all remember that the whole Bible contains God's words for us. If it's true that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus, if that's true that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 19 and 20, if that's true, don't you want to know what promises Jesus is coming through on? In other words, whether you call yourself a Christian or not so much, it's worth exploring what all the build-up of this Jesus fanfare is all about. right? And that's why we go to the Old Testament, and what a better place to look than Minor Prophets. Okay, so let's kind of recap what we've done so far. I'll be quick about it. Thus far this semester, the book of Amos, we've looked at Jonah, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. This week we're looking at Obadiah. Most scholars think that Obadiah lived roughly 20 years after Habakkuk, if you remember a couple weeks ago, and well after all the other minor prophets I just listed. Remember, we're kind of studying this in chronological, historical order. So most people think that this book of Obadiah was written slightly after 586 B.C. If you were an Israelite right now, 586 B.C. would sound like 1492, 1776... We would know exactly what that meant, but we're not. So 586 B.C. is the fall of Jerusalem, where the temple is destroyed. He's writing right after that moment. So think about it. He's writing a book right after the worst moment in Israelite history, in the people of God's history, up to that point. God's people, the believers in God, they're suffering confusion and anger and loss. That's Obadiah's historical context. But what is Obadiah the book all about? Well, if the prophets before Obadiah focused on ideas like injustice, grace, redemption, the kingdom of God, God as warrior king, God's joy, and faith, Obadiah's main theme is going to be humility. Humility. That is, what does it mean to be humble? Obadiah gives us a glimpse of the future to show us all the sad results of pride. The sad results of pride in a nation, Edom, from a person, Esau. These are people and a person who shrugged off the training wheels of God because they thought they were for needy people and for immature people. So tonight we're going to look at a key passage in Obadiah. We're going to study the benefits of divine humility and the drawbacks of human pride. So we're going to look at the benefits of divine humility and the drawbacks of human pride. So do you turn within your Bibles, if you've got one, or on, the, on your sheet, in the inside right-hand side. 
um, of the bulletin, the blue sheet. It's the book of Obadiah. No chapters, just one chapter. Only 21 verses. Guys, if you want to read one minor prophet, knock this one off your list. You can do it. I believe in you. Okay? Uh, would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Obadiah, chapter 1. Well, no chapters. Verse 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8. Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You live in the cleft of the rock, in your lofty dwelling. Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau, that is Edom, has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have been driven, have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you deceived you. They prevailed against you. Those who ate your bread at your table have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? These are the words of the Lord. They are more precious than gold, even much gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I confess that this is difficult, uh, tough sledding. Uh, And I pray, Father, that you would give us attention that you give us um, rest. I pray, Father, that this would be an exercise in gazing at you, studying the features of your son Jesus, marking the wounds of his hands and his feet, knowing full well, Father, um, the ways that you love us, the way that you've exercised divine humility, even in this moment, to give us your words. You, the, the author, creator, and sustainer of the universe, giving us words to hear about who you are. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to pay attention to those moments, to this moment right now, and help us not to leave the stuff that we came in with behind, but help us to, to throw the things that we came in with at your feet. Fill our spirits, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, once upon a time in a far, far away land, I was an intern like Jen and Stuart, if you know them, for RUF. That faraway land was Central Florida. And as an intern, I became friends with my campus minister. His name was Andy Johnson. Andy is an amazingly kind, patient, and insightful minister. But if you met Andy, you would realize that he is the master of awkward humor. He lives for the uncomfortable joke. I'm going to give you a few examples. One time he picked me up in front of a fancy hotel and he had his windows rolled down and he was blasting the song, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. (laughs) Bad enough, I walked into the car, sat shotgun, he turns to me and he yells the chorus in my face and grabs my inner thigh as hard as he can. (laughs) I nearly died. (laughs) Second story, every time we're in an elevator together with a random group of strangers... Andy not only pushes all of the buttons, it's pretty annoying, and 
he always turns to me and yells in a voice that everyone can hear, how's that rash, the shape of Italy, doing? Does it hurt when you walk? I don't have a rash in the shape of Italy, but everyone in the elevator thinks I do. Finally, we used to have staff meetings in a local Mexican restaurant where almost every time Andy would turn to the waitress and whisper, Sid's never had a burrito before. (laughs) This is his first time. He's a burrito virgin. (laughs) Again, not true. Every time. (laughs) So it shouldn't surprise you that Andy Johnson has a funny and uncomfortable story about his adopted child, Harper. But let me assure you, this time it's actually a true story. It's really actually an amazing story. Andy and his wife, Kelly, decided to adopt a child just recently, this past December. And they waited a long time, and finally a child became available, and they contacted the birth mother, and they were able to go to the hospital. The baby was about to be born. It was a little adopted child. And they were nervously waiting in the, in the waiting room, I guess, or the lobby of the, of the hospital. And the birth mother and her doctor, the doctor that had been with her through the ultrasounds and the checkups and the appointments, was delivering the baby. So in the midst of all this nervousness and all this pain, the birth mom pushed and out came the adopted child, Harper. A beautiful baby was born. And the nurse held up the baby to the mother and then to the doctor. And the mother, who was so tired from pushing, just smiled in relief. But the doctor did a double take. A literal double take. Alarmed, the doctor shouted at the nurse, What's wrong with his private parts? What's wrong with his private parts? The nurse turned to the doctor and said, Doctor, he's a girl. He's a she. You see, the doctor was absolutely convinced from the ultrasounds, from the checkups, that this baby was supposed to be a boy. The doctor was so convinced that this baby was supposed to be a boy that when the evidence was before her, she decided that the evidence was wrong. (laughs) She couldn't even see the obvious before her face. Harper was a healthy girl. There's a sense in which all of us are like the doctor in the story about God. Look at that hair. Look at that twist. Watch out. Okay? Whether we grew up in the church or we grew up in a family that was religious, whether you didn't grow up in either of those things like me, and you picked up your ideas about God from school and friends and family and television, whatever the case, we often see God how we want him to be and not how he is. We often remake God in our image instead of respecting the fact that he's made us in his image. For instance, in modern America, people imagine that if God was online, he would immediately and universally like every Facebook post, photo, or comment that we ever possibly made. And then he would definitely follow us on Twitter, because he's that kind of God. He's for us. He's my buddy Jesus. It's like God is Santa Claus, complete with twinkling eyes, a white beard, a full belly, and a a naughty and nice list that he's never prepared to actually use. I mean, after all, who got Colner and their stocking ever growing up? No one. 
Okay? I did once, but it was terrible. Um, it's a very bad joke. Don't do that to your children. Okay. The American God... The American God is cheerfully indifferent. He's cheerfully indifferent. Which is convenient for selling Coca-Cola around Christmas time, but not so convenient and actually feels like neglect when you're trying to personally relate to him. But if the minor prophets have taught us anything, it's that God works differently than we think he does. God doesn't always care about what we care about. Or actually, more importantly, the reverse. We often don't care about what God cares about. That is, things like humility and pride. This is the challenge of the minor prophets, and the, and the book of Obadiah is no exception. He's telling the Israelites, and he's telling us about God's favor towards the humble. And the challenge here is that in 21 verses, it's one of the most difficult and argumentative books in the Bible. It's uncomfortable, sort of like an Andy Johnson story. Okay? But in a different, slightly different way. And this is, this is what avoids us from reading books like Obadiah, and furthermore avoids us from reading kind of books, collective books like the Minor Prophets. But really, it's interesting that Obadiah is actually comforting his people. He's not, he's not being difficult on purpose. He's comforting them, but he's comforting them by describing the, the downfall of a proud enemy, Edom. He's telling the Israelites, he's telling us that God is for us. He is for us. He is not against us. He cares about us. He protects us. He is with us. He will protect and build us up again. That's really the message of Obadiah in a nutshell. In Obadiah verses 1 through 8, however, the passage we're looking at, God focuses in on this particular point. God opposes the proud. No matter how worthy. And God cherishes the humble no matter how unworthy. It's really worth repeating. God cherishes, or God opposes the proud, no matter how worthy, and he cherishes the humble, no matter how unworthy. In order to move us towards humbly believing in God and trusting in him, our passage actually is almost a clinical diagnosis of how pride works. First, in verses 1 through 4, Obadiah provides a definition of human pride. He catalogs the roots and the fruits, the roots and the effects, the causes and the effects of pride. Second, in verses 5 through 8, Obadiah exposes the places where we take pride. Places like riches and friendships and intelligence. Again, verses 1 through 4, we see pride's roots and fruits. Verses 5 through 8, we see pride's hiding places. Okay, does that make sense? Let's begin with verses 1 through 4. Obadiah's definition of pride, the roots and the fruits of pride. Okay, in verse 1, we read that God gives Obadiah a vision. And Obadiah sees this vision and writes it down. In other words, Obadiah is describing a mental picture that the Lord God gave to him. This means that the definition of pride that we're about to get is not like Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Okay, It will look much more specific than that and much more poetic than that. And that's the beauty and the difficulty of the minor prophets. So let me defend that idea. Because Obadiah defines pride 
by a particular nation, Edom, in a poetic way, with imagery and symbolism and figures of speech like metaphor and exaggeration. First, I've got to defend the way that Obadiah writes, because so many of us are already clearly putting this in the fiction section of Zool Library. Oh, it's poetry, right? Oh, that's cool, like Leaves of Grass and those were the books that... I, I read some of that in high school. That was pretty neat. I think I read Frankenstein around then. Um, so, look, that's, that's great, but these poetic descriptions, like verse 4, look at verse 4, okay? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars. Is he really nesting among the stars? It's a little bit of an exaggeration, okay? But, not nonetheless true, because the point is, I will bring you down. And how do we know this is true? First, we have to understand that poetry, the way that people, that Obadiah chooses to relate this definition of pride, doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. Just because it doesn't feel and sound like a science textbook, doesn't mean that it's not true. Okay? It's true even if it's using a different kind of language. How do we judge whether it's true or not? History tells us it's true. Less than a century after Obadiah wrote, what happens to Edom? It's brought down. And it's destroyed and conquered. So just because it doesn't seem true, doesn't mean it isn't true. Okay, second, why is Obadiah's focus on one small specific nation? After all, if you've been following along, the Babylonians are the ones that killed Jerusalem. They're the ones that destroyed Judah. Why are we focusing on one remote, small nation? Well, this requires a little bit of explanation. Edom and Israel were enemies. Going all the way back to the beginning. They neighbored, they shared the Dead Sea. Okay? Edom was southeast of Jerusalem, of Judah, of Israel. Okay? They, they shared the borders of the Dead Sea. But they weren't fighting over a way too salty body of water. What they were really fighting over goes all the way back to Esau and Jacob, also known as Israel. Okay? So let's do a little... Bible history lesson for you. I promise you it'll be interesting. Briefly, Jacob and Esau um, were twins. Esau was strong. He was hairy. He was an athletic, manly man who liked to hunt. And Jacob was weak and smooth-skinned, a mama's boy who liked to bake. Okay, that's the that's the portrait there. Okay. But Jacob was good at getting what he wanted, mostly through deception. So he steals Esau's birthright to the land and his father's blessing. This makes Esau upset for the rest of all time, <laughs> including his descendants. There's ne- they never got along after those moments. Can I just give you a side note because this is just so interesting. Ready? Edom is a play on the word Yadam in Hebrew. Yadam means red. Esau wasn't just hairy, he was a hairy redhead. He was a manly ginger. (laughs) Let that sink in for a second. Um, Also, Esau sells his birthright for, that's right, red stew. So when Esau, when Edom, when Esau, the people of Esau, his descendants are called Edom, it's not just a description of their founder, Esau. It's also an a insulting nickname. Okay? Back 
to our text. What does all of this Bible knowledge, this trivia, have to do with my life? What does that have to do with us? My answer? Everything. For instance, the rivalry between Esau and Jacob, between Edom and Israel, is a window into actually how pride works. Listen to the way that C.S. Lewis defines pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next guy. If everything became equally rich or clever or equally good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes us proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And so in verses 3 and 4, when Edom boasts in her strong defenses, her lofty dwelling, Edom is essentially saying, the reason why my mountain defenses are so impressive, Israel, is because they're more impressive than your defenses, Israel. Look who's soaring like an eagle, and look who's been destroyed by Babylon. Na-na-na-na, boo-boo. My paraphrase. Okay? Do you get what's going on here? Don't you see that this is at work also in our everyday lives? Here's a question. Why am I so harsh about everyone else who does my job? Why am I so harsh about everyone who likes what I like? Because deep down, I want everyone to appreciate me more than anyone else. Why is it so hard for me to rejoice in other people's successes? Because secretly, I want to be the best at everything. Why do some of you feel either encouraged or incredibly miserable when you find out your lab partner's grade? Because it somehow tells you how you're doing in that class and in life. And you're either doing great or terrible, not depending on your relationship with God, but because depending upon how she, your lab partner, is doing. Look, there's this website I really like called postsecret.com. Okay? I know some of you already heard of this. It's like it's one of those places where you this guy sent this website where you send in a postcard with your deepest, darkest secret. And he promises to post it on the internet. Somehow this is really appealing. It's anonymous. It's like an internet online confessional. Does that make sense? Over over five hundred thousand people have used this. Over half a million people have used this site. But one of my, all of my favorite posts are the posts that are the most personal and the most honest. And let me give you an example of a very personal and very honest post about pride. This is what one person wrote. When my friends go on diets, I discourage them. This is really just because I want them to be fatter than me. Okay? When my friends go on diets, I discourage them because I want them to be fatter than me. Okay, true post. Probably a very true sentiment that many of us are afraid to admit. Okay? Perhaps we're already seeing the effects or the fruits of pride. In our passage, verse 2, it tells us that Edom was despised or hated by all the other nations. And by the way, this is a prideful nation, let alone a prideful person's worst nightmare. Why? Because remember, pride is all about getting the most affirmation, the most appreciation, the most recognition you can possibly get from the most number of people. So if all the nations aren't liking you, that's not good. But why does Edom's pride, our pride, lead to to being despised in the long run? 
Because pride makes us think, pride makes us feel, pride makes us do nasty things to other people. In the case of Edom, verses 10 through 14 of Obadiah describe this in detail. It's not our passage tonight, but maybe you can just listen along. They tell us what pride looks like in action. When Babylon destroyed Israel, Edom didn't come in to help. Edom gloated. Edom jumped up and down and said, yes, destruction, we hate you. Edom contributed to Israel's destruction. They looted the leftover wealth. They captured Israel refugees and sold them back into slavery to Babylon. That's messed up. But if you're anything like me, everything in you right now is squirming and raging against the sermon so far. Why? I'm not an Edomite. Sure, said, maybe I struggle with a little bit of pride. But who's perfect? What are you trying to do to me? I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm not harming anybody. Get off my back, Druin. Well, there are some problems with our defensiveness. First of all, pride is the foundation, the root of all of our sins. Every other sin comes from pride. Because pride says about God, I got this. Leave me alone. It's human beings taking God's place or wanting to do life alone without God. That's what pride is. And this anti-state of mind, this anti-God state of mind, in the words of C.S. Lewis, leads leads us to every single sin. From small sins like anger at all the other terrible drivers out there. You know you've gotten angry at each other, so that doesn't really work logically. Okay, the other thing is, we've also, it leads us to all the big sins, like abuse and using people. The second and most condemning thing about why our defensiveness about pride is revealing is because the the chief effect of pride is self-deception. So let me put it this way. Listen to verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. So the more we complain that we don't have a problem with pride, the more we actually prove that we have a problem with pride. But because pride is so deceptive, let me give you a few tests. Three tests about how you tell whether you, to the extent and the depth of which we understand our own pride. Here's the first test. Do you hate how prideful other people are? This probably means that you and I have a lot of pride. <laughs> the more we have, the more we, we hate other people's pride, the more we have of it ourselves. Here's the second test. What do you angle your conversation towards? What subject are we fishing for that we hope someone will ask about? What talents do we want them to acknowledge about us? What do we want them to compliment? What are we dying for them to, to see about us? That's what we're proud of. And the Bible calls that an idol. Here's the final test. What do you and I think about the presence of God? What do we think about during times of worship? What do we think about during prayer? What do we think about when we read the scriptures? Do we think about ourselves and how much God approves of us and how much God likes the kingdom work we're doing as opposed to all the other ordinary people? Or maybe it looks the opposite. Maybe we think about ourselves as small and dirty and useless. Or, in God's presence, do we forget about ourselves entirely? 
What would it look like to forget about ourselves and worship? The extent to which we forget about ourselves in the contemplation of Jesus Christ's person and work is the extent to which we exercise humility. So feeling bad about yourself is false humility. And feeling good about yourself is false humility. Both are pride. Because they're about me. And this final test, C.S. Lewis' test of humility, also reveals the root of pride and the way to get humble. What is that? Our view of God. Most of us here have traded in the cultural Santa Claus view of God. Most of us here have replaced the jolly old Facebook stalker. I think many of us, though, have replaced him with what I would call God as Ivy League college admissions director. Okay, God as college admissions director, college admissions director at an Ivy League school. Very basically, our view of God is he's in the business of reading our resumes, of poring over our test scores, of our extracurricular lists, in order to ultimately accept or deny us, even if we feel like we're maybe on the waiting list right now. We think that God's like the cool kid in high school, don't we? The, you know, the one who you felt like weighed your appearance, assessed your performance, and judged the cost and benefit of hanging out with you and inviting you into her social circle and group of friends. The view of the world is behind our pride. This view, the desire to size up and to beat out the next person. And for the Christian person here, God is the one who's judging that beauty pageant in our hearts and our minds. But let me tell you this, the God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Bible is much different than we think. The God of the Bible does not sit at the cool table in heaven. No, he crossed the velvet rope and he became one of us. And Jesus, the infinite, majestic God, became a finite, ordinary man. He was born poor into our poop-filled barnyard misery. He lived amongst prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers and thugs. He washed people's feet like a slave boy. And he died like a clown on a cross between two crooks. This isn't just some humbling example. Believing in these truths, believing in this view of God, is the very way that you and I can get out of the pride-filled rat race. Pride is replaced by humility when we realize that all the affection, all the attention, all the appreciation and and adulation that we want is available for free in Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a beauty pageant where we compete for God's favor. If that were so, Esau and Edom would have won. They were bigger, they were faster, they were stronger, they were nicer, and they were kinder than Jacob and Israel. Instead, Israel is God's people. Instead, the modern, sometimes boring church is God's people. They're full of God's favor. Why? Because think about Jacob. He manipulated out of weakness, but eventually he ran out of tricks. 
And he had to come in his neediness to wrestle God for his favor. Whereas the Esau's of this world won't ever bend their knees in need. They think they're too good and too successful for that. And this view of God leads us to pride's definition. From pride's definition to the final point, pride's hiding places. And I'll make this brief. Verses 5 through 6 expose how the Edomites pridefully, how we pridefully trust in wealth. Whether that looks like a future job of our dreams or a present worry about student loans and and a faltering paycheck. Humility says to this hoarding hiding place, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich in all of the things that matter. Then verse 7 exposes how we privately trust in allies and friends to make our lives better, to give us security, to make us feel special, to deliver us from loneliness. But humility says that this network hiding place, it says to this network hiding place, this networking hiding place, Jesus is the only friend, the only true friend to sinners. Who else will lay down his life for us when we step on him to get ahead? And finally, in verse 8, we see exposed the way that we pridefully trust in our own wisdom, and our own intelligence to save us. To save us from becoming our parents, to save us from becoming ordinary, to save us from every problem that life faces us with. We could just outthink life. But humility says to this master plan, hiding place, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. True wisdom is in Jesus Christ. True wisdom became foolish to save those who believe. So I began by asking, are we sure we know what God looks like? Are we sure we know who God is like? And I'm going to end by asking a similar question. Are we sure we know what humility looks like? C.S. Lewis tells us, a really humble man as a cheerful, intelligent chap, just like chap, who takes a real interest in what you say about him, or what you say to him. So a cheerful, uh, humble man is a cheerfully intelligent chap who takes a real interest in what you say to him. He will not be thinking about his humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. In other words, the humble person doesn't enter the room and say, here I am. The humble person enters the room and says, there you are. So it's not like humility is nothing. It's not like humility cares about nothing. It's the opposite truth. Humility cares about everything. Humility cares about everything all the more because we start to care about ourselves and our performance less. And we start to care more about the way things actually are and how they're wonderfully given for us to live and to move and to have our being. Would you pray with me?
Father, this is a hard thing to hear, um, and I pray that you would open our hearts to this, uh, that we have a blushing, beautiful Savior who came down and loved us well, and has given us a way out of competing, out of pride, who's enabled us to think less about ourselves and more about other people, to appreciate the God-givenness of this world. I pray, Father, that you would teach us what that looks like. I pray that you'd help us to forget about ourselves, even as we pray now, even as we go forward into life. I pray that we would get so wrapped up in the things that you're doing in other people, the work that you're doing to promote your kingdom here on earth, that all we could do is worship you. We ask these things in your Son's name.